Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on baptism. I'm really excited to explore how we as Christians came to adopt this tradition of baptism. The saving waters is a theme that dates back well before John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. We're going to take a look in today's podcast at the ancient story of God saving his people through the waters. It's a theme repeated throughout the Bible. We'll take a look at the Old Testament understanding of the waters, and then in subsequent podcasts, we'll take a look at the New Testament use of baptism, and we'll look at some of our faith communities and how they interpret the purpose of baptism. As we've discussed before, the Bible is really one unified story that points to Jesus from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis all the way through Revelation at the end of the New Testament. The stories are woven together and interconnected, even though they're a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors spanning about 1,500 years. So the description of the waters in the Bible, I'm hoping will bring you to a similar conclusion that the stories really are connected and point towards salvation through Jesus and preparation for his return. As the Bible project authors so succinctly put it, we're going to trace the pattern of God providing salvation for his people through the waters. And this theme of salvation through the waters will lead us to the stories of Jesus's baptism and the development of baptism in the early church. Are you ready to dive in? Waters appear at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we have Creator God separating the waters that are dark and chaotic, and He creates a place where life can flourish. Listen to what happens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then we have in verse 6 of Genesis 1, And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And then we have God gathering the water in one place and letting dry ground appear. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. Separating, it's a theme early on. God separating light from dark. God separating waters above from waters below. God separating seas from dry land. Now, all is good until we get to Genesis chapter 3. This is where we have a return to chaos again. Humanity, because of our desire to determine for ourselves good and evil, well, we unleash chaos back into creation. 
This is where we start to see God separating the waters again. But as the Bible Project authors explain this time, instead of God creating order through the acts of separating water like he did in Genesis 1, God will now rescue a remnant of his people who will pass through the waters. Originally, God's separation of the waters was with purpose to create a safe space for all of us, for all of creation. But once humanity brought chaos back into creation, well, now we're going to see that God will use the waters as a form of rescue for his people. Okay, let's see how this plays out. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 6. This is where we have Noah and his family. The Bible tells us that at this point it was bleak. There was wickedness everywhere. In fact, Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through 8 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that the inclination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what is God going to use to destroy? Water. What happens when God unleashes the flood is sort of a de-creation or an anti-creation because it's really the opposite of the creation story. Because now this time, the springs of the deep and the heavens above literally open up sending torrents of dangerous water in a way reversing what God had done at the beginning of creation, which was to hold back the waters to protect life. So this time through this flood, God is going to wipe out all of creation from days five and six, except for Noah and his family and two of every animal. When God rescues Noah and his family and the animals that were in the ark, God puts them on dry land. You're going to see that this is going to be a theme. See the parallel with the creation story where God created a safe space. He separated the, tr the seas and created dry land. God places Noah and his family on the top of a mountain on dry land. And literally humanity and all living creatures start again. What's another significant water story in the Old Testament? Yes, it's the story of Moses. Now first, Moses as an infant is rescued from the waters of the Nile. And he's certainly escaping certain death. Remember, it was the Pharaoh who had ordered the death of every Hebrew male two years and under. So what Moses' mother did was she placed her baby in a handmade ark and placed him on the Nile River. Moses' name literally means to pull out from the water. Now, kind of a super cool side note is that Hebrew word for ark, A-R-K, is the same word 
for Ark that Noah used that saved him from the waters. These are the only two times that this word is used in the Bible to save someone from the waters. So Moses, as a baby, is plucked out of the waters and is placed safely on dry land. Then we continue with the theme of the waters. And this is when Moses is 80 years old and he's called by God to lead his people out of Egypt and to cross the Red Sea. What does God do? God separates the waters so his people can cross the Red Sea and end up safely on dry land. See how this theme is continued of God bringing us safely through the waters. 40 years later, the Hebrew people are ready to enter the promised land. This time, they're under the leadership of Joshua. Once again, God is going to bring his people safely through the waters. God has instructed Joshua to have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, different Hebrew word, and the priests are instructed to stand in the Jordan River. Okay, can you imagine how most likely frightened the priests were to be stepping into the rushing water of the Jordan River carrying the Ark of the Covenant? Joshua chapter 3 verses 12 through 17 says, And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Now the Jordan set flood stage during the harvest. Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing on dry ground. Now, did you hear the author's emphasis of separating of the waters and people being deposited safely on dry ground? For the Hebrews here in this story, crossing the waters wasn't because they were being pursued by an Egyptian army like during the time of Moses, but crossing the river here would have been treacherous because it was a flood stage and flowed very rapidly. There's a million people who need to cross, and they are crossing the waters with God's help to get to that place, that dry ground that God has prepared for them the promised land. Fast forward, <laughs> here we have the story of Elijah, and it's told in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Do you know this story? It says, the company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A, and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. 
So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. What did you hear? The water divided, and they crossed over on dry ground. Okay, then, of course, the super cool thing happens. Elijah is miraculously taken to heaven in a chariot, and then his protege, Elisha, performs the same miracle and crosses the Jordan River on dry ground again. These are the five incidences recorded in the Bible where water is parted or separated by God. But it's not the last time that water is mentioned. Let's take a look at some other ways that water is mentioned in the Bible and see if you can start to see a theme. Let's forward to 700 BC. This is during the life of the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah uses the metaphor of life emerging from chaotic waters. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah prophetically talks about Christ's second coming. And he says he will gather the waters of the Egyptian Sea and the Euphrates River so that men can cross over in sandals. Now, this is Isaiah speaking metaphorically of a future time when God will bring back all his scattered people by drying up the waters, so to speak. And he says that this is God once again providing a way for his people's safe return. Isaiah also in chapter 11 compares all the neighboring nations to chaotic waters. It's a metaphor for their enemies. In other words, anything that's harmful could be described as chaotic waters. Now, David in his Psalms, he picks up on this theme frequently. For example, in Psalm 18, verses 15 through 19, David compares the enemy nations as valleys of a sea that are going to be pulled back and exposed. And David talks about God rescuing him from the waters. He says, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Again, we see a theme of being rescued from the waters as a tool that God uses to bring us back safely to him. Now, there's other water stories in the Old Testament. For example, have you listened to my Jonah podcast? Jonah swallowed by a fish in the water and he jumps into the water actually hoping that the water will consume him or kill him because he's trying to escape from God. But God takes Jonah safely from the waters, so to speak, because the whale spits him out. Where? Onto dry land. Okay, we're going to take a break from water just for a moment. 
because now we have to talk about a really fun topic, our sinful nature. Yeah. When you study the Bible, you start to see that there's this repeated narrative about our destructive behavior and kind of how we're slaves to it. We have these awful patterns of thoughts and behaviors, and we keep repeating them, even though we don't want to. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. Okay, yeah, I know that's a lot of confusion, but at the same time, it makes a certain amount of sense, right? I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. Okay, so we're slaves to our sinful emotions and behaviors, so to speak. The Bible then goes on to describe that humans are in a chaotic pattern that we can't seem to break ourselves. It seems that we need someone to push back the waters of chaos in our lives. Are you following this metaphor? This is repeated throughout the Bible. We humans need someone to hold back the waters. Now remember, the whole point of the Bible is for us to see ourselves in the narrative and see our need for a savior. It's not just a story about some ancient people halfway across the world thousands of years ago who spoke a funny language and ate weird food. No, it's a story about us, our struggle against the chaos, our struggle against human nature, our need for a savior. The power that the Bible tells us that can conquer this chaos is not us. We would drown on our own. To continue this water metaphor, we can only be saved from the waters of chaos by God through the Holy Spirit. We'll finish out this podcast talking about the importance of water to people living during the time of the Old Testament. And again, kind of continuing this idea of God rescuing us or saving us through water. Psalm 42. Now, this is written by sons of Korah, K-O-R-A-H. Okay. Uh, you might be asking, who is Korah, and why is it important that his sons wrote some psalms? Well, funny you should ask. Korah is actually uh, mentioned in the book of Numbers, 
chapter 16. Uh, he made a bad mistake. He led a revolt against Moses. Not a good idea. So this guy, Korah, is one of the people who died when God caused the earth to open and swallow them up. Oh, yeah, that Korah. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, Korah's sons, or actually ends up being his grandsons. Well, King David appointed some of them to be choir leaders. So psalms are songs, and they wrote 11 of them. One of them written by the sons of Korah is Psalm 42. Okay, so beautiful, and you've probably heard part of this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The writer is comparing a deer's need for water for survival and our need and dependence on God for survival. And even though most translations say, my soul thirsts, many theologians feel it really should say, my throat thirsts instead of my soul. Um, because in ancient times, that was a better image of the entire body because the throat to ancient Hebrews really was the most important part of the body. It connected the head to the rest of the body. And so that way they would be describing their whole body thirsting for God. Living in Arizona, not hard to understand the ancient dependence on water. Israel is a desert. Much of the Bible narrative takes place in areas very dependent on water. Unlike other parts of the ancient world, the territory of the Old Testament relied heavily on wells that you had to dig or natural springs to supply their water. So flowing water or living water, water that moved, well, this became a metaphor for God's love and provision for his people. Having water that would move on its own, be active on its own, like spring water, well, that was truly a gift because it meant no one had to dig for it. According to the website, womanofnoblecharacter.com, water is so important in scripture that it is mentioned 722 times. That's more than faith, more than hope, more than prayer, and more than worship. I know. While water is life-giving, it also, as we've seen, can represent evil and difficulties. The prophet Jeremiah, he talks about the danger of being attracted to false waters of the Nile and the Euphrates. So Jeremiah is referring metaphorically to waters being temptation. Returning back to our buddy Isaiah in chapter 43, verse 2, he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame will not consume you. Who's going to protect you through the waters? God says, I will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. Again, here, the waters represent danger, the world, temptations. But who saves us? 
God. So I hope you're starting to see that this Old Testament use of the word water is symbol for danger and chaos, but also it's pointing to salvation and eternal life, which God offers through his son. Now we're going to see this theme of redemption through the waters also in the New Testament. So we're going to move to the New Testament and one of the best stories told by John, John chapter 4. This is where Jesus is traveling from Judea on his way to Galilee. And it's about noon, which is in Israel during the summer, a time when most people would be taking a nap. They'll have the siesta. They're not going to be out in the midday sun. So Jesus sends his disciples away, but he goes to a well and then a Samaritan woman approaches. Now she is out in the midday sun because she's expecting at this time to not run into anyone. Her life is chaos. Think of the waters. She's been married five times and the person she's currently living with is not her husband. So here we see a story played out of God rescuing us from the chaos of our lives using water. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? You know, he gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. That's John chapter 4 verses 10 through 15. Did you notice how here Jesus refers to the water that he is to give the woman? Living water. And then he goes on to say he is the source of that water which springs up to eternal life. Jesus is making this claim that the water he can offer us fills that void. Think back to the sons of Korah psalm, the deer panting for water. Jesus is the water that we need to quench our thirst or our desire for peace, joy, self-love, hope, satisfaction. The world can't offer this. Only he can. As John points out later in chapter 10, verse 10, abundant life can only be found in him. We're going to return one more time to the Old Testament, to this idea again of life-saving water. Back to our buddy Isaiah. This is chapter 12, verse 3. He says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then in chapter 55, Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy eat come buy wine and milk 
without money and without price. Waters are described as life-giving in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 1, talks about the river of water of life that flows from the throne of God. That's a description of heaven. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now we're going to end this podcast just with a quick summary. We recall the story of Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman, and he said that he could supply her with living water. In Isaiah, in Revelation, and other places, we see this image repeated of Christ inviting us to come and drink the water of life. To quote my NIV study Bible, we live in a world that desperately thirsts for living water, and many are dying of thirst. Many are drowning in the troubled waters of life. Remember how waters can represent chaos? Many don't know that Jesus can rescue them from that turbulence. Meditate on Jesus calming the seas. Remember when he did this for his disciples and they were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee? What do the waters look like in your life right now? Are you treading water, barely keeping your head up? Are you sinking in the sea of sin and despair? Or are you in faith, walking on water, looking towards Jesus who can provide us with life-giving water? Water that can cleanse us from all of our sins. Now we're going to pick up this theme of waters and how it leads to baptism in our next podcast. In the meantime, invite others to come and drink and be a blessing.